Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and do not necessarily reflect views held by the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. This is Sunday Edition with Anthony, a news magazine show featuring human interest, in the spotlight, movers and shakers, and the news and happening that affect all of us in and out of the ACB community. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is Sunday Edition, and I am your host, Anthony Corona. I am so pleased to be here again this Sunday with another amazing show. We'll be speaking a little bit later on in the program with Paul Schrader, and uh, we will be opening up with Jill Lynn Bailey Page. Just a couple of announcements before we get started. Uh, first and foremost, with the welcome, 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 I've been going to some community calls lately, so thank you everyone when you see my name who does the welcome, 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 but it's, uh, <laughs> it's getting old now. <laughs> um, so I wanted to remind everyone that uh, Jason Castingway's Valentine's Day concert fundraiser for ACB Radio is still available. Go to acbradio.org. Check out how you can make a $25 donation and get an almost three-hour amazing, beautiful concert. Um, coming up in the next couple of weeks on Sunday edition, we'll be speaking with Debbie Grubb and Lori uh, Scharf um, and some, some of the other members of the Education Task Force Committee. Uh, that is next week. Uh, I will also be speaking with the uh, CEO, Troy, of Ira, along with friends of the show, Janine Stanley, who's been here. And we love whenever she's here. She's got great and vivacious energy. And I will also be leading a, an in-depth conversation with the voting task force. Uh, and they will go through all of the uh, ins and outs of what we'll be doing at national convention. So look forward to that. And then, of course, the first week of April, we'll be continuing Losing Sight Midlife. We've got some great resources that we'll be bringing you. Tyson Ernst, of course, will be back. And then the end of April, I am very pleased to announce that I will be giving an in-depth review and speaking with the CEO of The Talking Cane. So look forward to all of those things. Um, I might even have a little video to go with that. Uh, Byron Lee, who is usually my engineer extraordinaire, had the great opportunity of speaking at a sci-fi conference uh, this Sunday. So thank you so much to Jason Castingway in the background. He was streaming for us. Uh, like I said, please go check out his concert and donate to ACB Radio. And John is our uh, host in the background. So when it comes time to congratulate Jolynn and, and make some comments, raise your hand and John will uh, pop us into the conversation. So here we go. Jolynn Bailey Page, who I am so honored to be able to call a friend. This lady is extraordinary. She's been on Sunday Edition before in her previous role, but now we are congratulating her for her new role with ACB. Jolynn, welcome. Thank you so much. Good morning to everyone. Good morning. How was, uh, how was uh, springing forward? Oh, as we discussed a little bit earlier, springing forward was more like a groggy roll into the future. But um, I'm here and up, and uh, I think we all struggle with the spring change. So 
Uh, but in a few days, we won't remember it. And we'll all be enjoying a few more minutes of daylight at the end of the day, you know, just to enjoy the evening smells and not feel so cooped in. Uh, the scents and the sounds of evening. So absolutely. I love that. So we um we want to get to know you a little bit. We'll talk about the new role in a few minutes, but um let's get to know Jolyn herself for those no. of those of us who have not been lucky enough to interact with you the way I have. <laughs> or crazy. Tell us, <laughs> tell us where you're from. Um we also we know that uh, your sister Susan is very, very well beloved in the ACB community. So where are you from and how did you make it to ACB? Well, I am originally from um, dear, an area near Detroit, Michigan. Hello, Cindy in Flat Rock. Um, I was born in Toledo, Ohio, and we moved to Dearborn um, area until 1960-something and then migrated out to California here in uh, Saratoga, Los Gatos area of the peninsula, San Francisco Bay area. And after, you know, growing up here for part of that time, I migrated around, but wound up on the East Coast after some time in England um, and pretty much on the East Coast from 1978 through December of 2019 when I came back to California. So I'm currently living just south of San Francisco on the, the San Francisco Peninsula and will be migrating a little further south at the end of spring to be closer to Susan and John Glass and my son and his family. That's it in a nutshell, kind of back and forth across country, but here I am. As far as ACB, kind of migrated into that naturally um, after my sister became a member and um, I was in between, I had just left a position at George Mason University and wanted to do something with writing with um creating and um susan clued me into the audio description institute and said i think you might enjoy this uh dr joel snyder um is hosting you know a new training session and i was free at the time so i took the first training and was hooked and then took a second training from from joel and then uh Received some additional training with the lead con, the Kennedy Center's lead conference. So that was my, along with that training uh, institute, that was my first um, ACB convention, and um, I just was fascinated. And then, as the audio description project developed, uh, Dan Spoon invited me to be on the committee. Uh, the steering committee, and that was, I think, in 2013. So ever since then, I've been, you know, involved either tangentially or right in the trenches with ACB. And as you know, once you once you start to to participate, you develop a huge wardrobe of hats. I think we all have at least six different hats in our closet that we put on at any given time for an ACB role. Yeah, you know, when I when I describe the the feeling to friends, you know, outside of the of the ACB community, friends, you know, especially sighted friends, I often um I often joke and go to the Godfather Three, that famous scene that um you know that they use in all the trailers, and you see it all over the place. Every time I get out, they just drag me back in, <laughs> <laughs> yes, and in the best indeed. way possible, that is ACB. 
It is. It's absolutely wonderful. And for me, audio description to um, evolve somewhat naturally, just um, being part of um, Susan's life growing up. And uh, I think just doing some ad hoc, you know, off the cuff description, that was part of our daily life is to incorporate that. So. We so any we we you know we view the world with all of our senses, not just the eyes. And yeah. Uh, so anybody listening would have to agree with me. You have an absolutely beautiful voice. Um, it 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 is perfectly made for audio description. But um, a little birdie tells me that you use your voice in a couple of other ways too. Can you? Can you tell our listeners uh, how else you use your voice? Well, that's a family story as well. Our family is quite musical, um, but in an odd way, we we have a history of church musicians on my mother's side. And growing up Lutheran, um, if you're Lutheran, you know you sing. Whether or not you sing, you sing. Um, You're expected to sing. And um, so choral singing became a big part of our life. And I've always enjoyed singing in choirs. And when I had the opportunity to go back to school um, later in life, you know, certainly not in my twenties again, I decided I wanted to pursue a music education degree, but wound up migrating to vocal performance. So I do have a degree. um, I'm a classically trained um, vocalist. And my focus was more on sacred music um, and uh, some opera, but I do enjoy singing still. The voice has changed, but it's still serviceable. I would I would consider myself a serviceable soprano, vocally wise. Vocally-wise. Oh, I like that. My voice so let me. It's, it's just okay at this point. <laughs> let me ask you, what is um what is your favorite hymn or or church um rousing church uh song? And what would be your favorite opera aria to sing? Um, oh my gosh, that's hard. Um there are too many hymns from which to choose. I think um Martin Luther wrote some great hymns. I mean our classic Lutheran hymn is a mighty fortress is our God. Um, but there are so many other beautiful ones, including some Welsh hymn tunes that really move um, that are, that are beautiful. I can't really think of one off the top of my head. If I, if I do, I'll come back later. Ari is to sing um, an opera, a vocal coach once described me as having an, a voice suited to all the Ina roles um, like uh it was, I'm basically a light lyric coloratura, or although I've lost my top, so it would be any of the the higher pitched voices. So as far as Puccini, you know, anything from Butterfly would work, although that's lyric. Um, and of course, the the great role to have is the Queen of the Night in Mozart's Magic Flute. Um, Absolutely. But Pamina, Pamina, the role of Pamina would be more my uh, or Susanna. Um, but, um, yeah, just more of a light, light voice. Queen of the Night is, is, um, one of my favorites, uh, as well as the Shadow Song from, uh, yes. Denora. Yeah. yeah my God. <laughs> and just, uh, just point of privilege, uh, Blind Part International will be hosting a night of great opera arias during oh. national conventions. So please join us for that. And, and uh, sit on our panel and give us your, you know, your opera 
moments of, of glory. Um, we'd love that. <laughs> yeah. How often do you get to sing now? Uh, rarely. <laughs> um, in the house, but it's it's hard you know, to vocalize alone. Um, I think that's one of them, one of the great laments of performing artists, anyone in choir is, is, and I do actually prefer singing in a choir to doing solo performances or or leader recitals, you know, art song recitals, um, where you reach a much smaller audience. And I, I love that. But um, as far as uh, choir singing, it, you know, you really miss that pinging off of each other's energy. And there's something about singing in the choir where the physics of it, you know, the resonances and overtones yeah. create their own life. So that's been a great sadness. And when I moved out here in December of 2019, I just found a, a congregation and then also an external choir opportunity. And of course, those evaporated. So hopefully with the lifting of restrictions in the next year, we can all go back to um, engaging in those activities that, that bring us so much pleasure. Did you ever have the pleasure of of being part of um, being able to perform Mozart's Requiem? Yes, actually, I, I have. Um, that that is one of the great joys of singing in a in a, a yeah. that, that sings in churches. You know, sacred works because all of the the masses and the requiems. You know, I'm looking at my bookshelf and the scores are all lined up on the bottom. Of the, you know, the shelf for all of those. Um, those works and that's really a joy to be able to do that and that is an absolutely beautiful composition for the folks out there you know when you pick up the violin or you pick up the piano you know you have hours and hours of training to you know get your hand movements your finger placings and and get you know i I love how different pianists will their posturing becomes part of their art tell the folks you know how do you keep your voice in shape how do you stay in you know in the you know in the ranges that that you need to stay in to be able to perform at your max well unfortunately i'm not practicing what i would preach which is daily warm-ups you know and they're not hard involves lip trill and tongue trill so a, a Lip trill would you just start out by warming up what you call your mask, which is your face. You could even tap it, but then um, just that's a lip trill, and then a tongue trill is the tongue behind the teeth, and that would be that sort of gets things rolling. And then there's a series of vocalises, um, usually on focused on vowels. And you um, start in your mid-range, which is just where you are comfortably speaking, and then gradually go up and gradually go down and increase the range till you've just warmed everything up, much like you would with piano scales or or violin finger exercises. Um, Lots of hydration. Um, Not talking on the telephone. It's probably one of the worst (laughs) things you can do for your voice. rest and um, I don't know. I just uh, read a fascinating book. It's called Jackie and Maria and it's uh, it's about the intersection of oh. the lives of yeah Jackie Onassis and Maria Collis. 
but the 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 author did a lot of research and you know all of the maria callas parts um are so and for the reader by the way is is phenomenal you really think that there's two or three readers in the book you know the narrator and then wow. the two characters um you know and and that's you go down a rabbit hole i you know i started on youtube listening you know listening to um interviews with Maria Callas and a few of Jackie Kennedy, but you go down the rabbit hole and you just find things. It amazes me, you know, somehow some of these singers, people don't realize how difficult the bottom notes actually are, you know, and when you're flying through that range and, and to be able to sustain a bottom note like that, it just, God, everybody out there listening, if you have never listened to Maria Callas, uh, Joe, uh, Jolyn just mentioned the Queen of the Night aria. You can find her performance on YouTube, and it, it will change your life. <laughs> it really will. She had a um, unique. Her voice was extremely um, well. It reflected her personality. She was larger than life, and her vocal performances um, reflected that. She put everything into every performance. And some, I mean, there were folks who really did not like her voice because it, it at times had an edge to it, but there was never abrasiveness. Yeah. There was an abrasiveness, but it fit exactly what she, it was who she was. And it, it was extraordinary. Um, One of the things that people say over and over again is exactly what you just said. Even in rehearsals, she put everything that she had into the performances and she lived to serve the composers and to serve the music rather than her interpretation of it. And people say that her voice, you know, she gave, because she gave so much, her voice, you know, went earlier than it would have if she held back. And, and you know, when you listen to other, you know, other artists like Diana Demarau or, um, or even Dane Jones Sutherland, you know that they're, you know, if, if you listen to the same piece by Maria Callas and then one of the others, you know, okay, that's what they're talking about. There's just a little bit of holding back on those top notes and, and a little bit of holding back in the passion of, of what's being sung. But uh, we're spinning off. As I, as yeah, I, I know. We need, <laughs> as you can tell, it's, it's a passion for both of us. And, and it is, uh, I know we have many fine singers in ACB. I've heard some. Um, so a couple of years ago, you were still in Washington and you transitioned actually into the ACP family in another way. You, um, you took a contract uh, supporting role with ACB. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, yes. In 2015, um, I came on board um, following Joe Steigerwald, who was then ACB's grant contract grant writer. And Joe was ready to move on uh, to take another position, I believe, full time um, in Ohio. And so Tom Tobin, our development director, then reached out and uh, I think spoke with Dan Spoon and then um, Melanie Brunson and Kim Charlson interviewed me. And so I, I assumed that role in 2015. And at that point, um, Joe had left a beautiful, thoughtful grants pipeline um, of of prospects, which really at that time matched ACB's um, capacity and our needs. And of course, since then, we've grown tremendously and um, both the scope of what we need to, you know, to ask and then our capacity for delivering on larger projects has, has grown. So um, I've been, been on board as the contract grant writer since uh, 2015. 
Well, I, you know, being privileged enough to have had the internship experience and working with you and Tony Stevens, I can definitely say it was an absolute highlight. Um, you turned the grant pipeline into a portfolio, a, uh, what, are, what are we calling it now? A power grid, right? Tony, you know, t- Tony is such a superb writer and being from communications and radio, he is able to coin very memorable acronyms, you know, or, or descriptions. So we're calling, he came up with the grants power grid, which I love. So we, we affectionately refer to it as the GPG and, um, it's it has changed its focus. Uh, it's right now we we actually paired back the fifty four prospects we were using to thirty four now, but they are also they also reflect involvement with larger uh, foundations and some corporations. So that's why it's a power grid. It's condensed, but uh, the focus is more intense and powerful, and it reflects our our ongoing activities right now, including our. I know that you'll be, everyone will become more aware of our Get Up and Get Moving campaign, which is part of a health and wellness initiative launched this year. Um, so, yeah, we, we, you just change with the times and ACB's capacity has grown and the needs have changed. So you um, reassess and then go out and look for better, you know, matches and it really is you you can we now have 34 entries in the GPG and what those really represent is 34 opportunities to tell ACB's story to do yeah. that outreach and create those relationships and it really is all about our voice our choice our voice creating community and sharing that with with other folks who have the same interests who are who want to support us and and who we can help in return well that's, that actually leads into the perfect segue um a couple of months ago like i said when i was in the internship and then kind of started working with you guys there was something that was on the table that just came to fruition and it it's the perfect sunday to actually talk about it because yes. a year ago this week uh, you know, we were in the the beginning of of this nightmare of a pandemic, and and uh, the community calls were born based uh, based off of some things that uh, some ideas that Cindy Hollis had, and some of us as affiliates were struggling and reaching out, creating these Zoom calls, you know, on our own, not really having any kind of structure or anything, and and then boom, you know, before the end of the month, we were up to 20 something calls. And the next month, uh, I believe it was like 40 something calls for the month. Um, But this all happened a year ago this week. And just a few weeks ago, we got some amazing news based upon a lot of hard work and and the bulk of it. I'm I'm sure Tony would not reprimand me in any way, shape or form by saying that the bulk of of that piece of grant, um, you know, fell on your shoulders. And you brought to ACB a grant to cover an assistant who will be named soon, I'm sure, to help Cindy in the <laughs> massive amount of work that she does every week. On top of you know all of the things that she needs to do as member service coordinator, she also is uh, you know the the beginning and end responsibility for all these community calls, making sure they go off without a hitch, training people to do them, scheduling them, getting them out to emails. Um, so tell us just a little bit about what that process was like, and uh, congratulations 
on, on making that happen because oh, it was really needed. First of all, it really was a team effort um, with you, Tony, Cindy. Um, and it does go back. Uh, before I go into that, I just wanted to build on what you said. It is the anniversary. And I learned early last week that we are on track to break 360 calls for March. Yep. Um, and last Wednesday, which would have been a week ago, we topped 3,000 3, calls. So that, I mean, you can see that just exponential growth and um, it's just, and you're right, Cindy needs a tremendous amount of, she gives every minute of every day toward it, but um, now she, she does have another intern and I believe Belinda and um, just, but there is now going to be a position, which is the membership services assistant to help her organize all those calls to set up the you know a structure uh, supervise the training and that frees Cindy up to do many many other um, outreach activities but our relationship now moving forward to the the Gibney Family Foundation which is our grantor for this position uh, which will fully fund the position for a year um, we began to do outreach to them in 2017 uh, Kim Charlson uh, made our initial introduction with Frank Gibney, the founder, and um, he has since retired, and his niece, uh, Tracy Wasden, is now in charge. So, as you know, um, Anthony, when we, we were able to arrange um, a meeting, Eric Eric did a lot of that outreach to affect, and yeah. Tony did, um, to affect that first meeting with the team. And then you were brought in and Cindy was brought in after we um, gave them the initial proposal. We had a one round of discussions just introducing ACB and all the marvelous activity that came out of, out of this unfortunate uh, COVID-19 um, pandemic. But they were just thrilled to see how the organization had responded in, you know, to decrease the social isolation and um, provide these, this uh, network of community calls. So we were invited to develop a formal proposal, which you, you helped with, and um, that was sent out. And uh, I, we worked with the grants team who were just tremendous in reviewing the drafts and giving us suggestions and uh, encouraging us. And uh, we received news in February that we received that, that grant. So um, the money has been received and the position is, you know, underway in terms of finding, finding the right person and, uh, it's a success story, but one thing again to reiterate: it takes time. I don't. I'm not sure I said this before, but but again, establishing relationships with foundations and corporations, it's just like reaching out to members. You know, you create, you tell your story, you create a connection, you find commonality, and um, and this was just this was almost like a storybook progression. Um, and we couldn't have asked for better mentoring as we went through this process. So we hope to establish, you know, a long-term relationship with them. And um, of course, well, I think it'll, it will help our program. Cindy's, you know, initiative just go to a completely different level. 
Absolutely. And I think we hear over and over again in the community calls that, you know, as the pandemic eases back and, you know, God, I'm knocking on wood that we all, you know, get that that shot in our arm and, and you know, that what President Biden is, is uh, for, you know, putting out there that we are all able to celebrate in a much, uh, much happier and, and less stressful capacity for the 4th of July but it's, you know, the community calls, they're not going to go anywhere. This has become, this is, it's so much bigger than I think any of us could have imagined. Um, yes. But in the best ways possible. Uh, yeah. I, I was looking over, um, looking over the schedule for this week. And um, we are, we have 90, I think it's 97 calls this week, which is just yeah. absolutely amazing. And there's, there's something, there's something for everyone, you know, widows and widowers. There's, you know, um, 12 step support. There's coffee clutches and and you know um i actually here's a great place for me to plug turn the page this uh this coming wednesday every other wednesday we'll be doing romance and mystery um and i'm really excited about that the the first wednesday of uh, march we we broke romance um we had a great number of callers we picked a great book to read and this wednesday we'll be doing it all over again in the mystery genre Right. But um, I digress as I usually do. <laughs> oh, Ninety-seven nice. calls, and there's something for everyone, and it's it's a beautiful thing. Well, I think, and again, um, we in terms of collecting our the, the collective experiences. I know some of our stories. Um, we we had some testimonials which we used in the grant proposal, and I believe they're up on our ACB Voices blog, but. I'm going to be working with Cindy to develop a ne- mechanism, perhaps another community call to introduce this topic and start gathering these stories on a regular basis because it is our voice. It's our individual, their individual voices, which become the collective voice. And we build a story bank and, you know, which can be used for, for purposes like grants, but also just to communicate. And one thing I think folks need to remember, too, this is important to grants, uh, grant writing in terms of metrics, but it also is a measure of our success. Every time someone, either on a committee, when you put time in on a committee or hosting a community call, those are volunteer hours. And in 2019, which we're still totaling up 20, I believe, but in 2019, ACB volunteers, we had a recorded number, and this is low recorded number of 20,866 volunteer hours for an in-kind value of $531,000. That demonstrates commitment from the organization, from its constituents. And those are the sorts of things that, that are really valuable for both members to know what they've put in, but also to, to um, share with potential donors or foundations or other members. This is an organization that's vital and there's a place for everyone. And we meet people where they are. And that's kind of staggering because if you think about between national convention and the community calls, those numbers for 2020 are probably going to be just about tripled. And and yeah, that's absolutely staggering. And we should, we should take this moment to say, you know, it is a huge thanks to every single one, whether you're, you know, you host one call or, you know, you're on five, commu- you know, five committees, five calls, 
three special interest affiliate, you know, it doesn't matter if, if, if you give one or you give a hundred hours, every single person who volunteers is, is so thank you know, so thanked by all of us who, no who understand how much, how much it takes. We would not be able to run this organization with just the staff or with just a couple of board members and the staff. It takes every single one of, of, of all of you out there who put in time and love to make these things happen. Thank you for, for leading us that way, Jolene. I, I've wanted to say that for a while, but there just wasn't, there wasn't the opportunity on Sunday edition yet. So thank you for that. We'll, we'll lead off with that. And I'm sure other people will, will build on that from whatever, you know, whatever committee they're on. Just, just no. So it's been a couple of years, um, you know, and your primary responsibility was, was writing grants. But um, as you said, Dan invited you on to the steering committee. And what I think, you know, you're, an extremely beautifully humble person. I, yeah. I think people, you know, that are on the in the organization, either tangentially or or not so much on the volunteer side of things, just experiencing the programming in the organization. What they don't realize is you add and have added so much to the organization, ADP, working with the staff, working with grant writing, anywhere, oh my God, if they realized, you know, how much you did during national convention last year, they'd be astounded. Um, you know, anywhere you've been asked to, to pitch in, you always have. What stands out in the last couple of years for you? What's What's been the most rewarding? Well, first of all, thank you for your kind words, but everyone- My true words. <laughs> there, that's it's no more than anyone else gives truly Anthony and I believe that there there are just every single person gives a hundred percent and you know we're all there um together but thank you I think for me in spite of I love I've loved working on all of the audio description project subcommittees and doing all that and, and helping to supervise the, the conference and conventions working with Dr. Joel Snyder on that but I think I'd have to jump in, as so many others, I think, would feel the virtual convention last summer, the, mm -hmm. the headiness of it, the craziness of it, the behind-the-scenes chaos, and producing this, just this behemoth of, you know, of, I don't even know what to call it, but that was the most fun and the most, at times, most terrifying I think we were all running around at one point or another, pulling out our hair. But and I was only a tiny part of that. But it was it was wonderful to see us kind of rise from this cauldron of the pandemic, this horrible, horrible situation, and become the premier organization for using Zoom platform to conduct business and bring folks together and create a stronger community create better ties between ACB National and the affiliates, um, in, increase membership, increase contributions. So to be part of that was, I would say, hands down, that's been the most fun and the most challenging and the most rewarding. Yeah. And, you know, I, I've said this once or twice before along, along the last year, but we were the, the only nonprofit at that point, um, you know, and by far and large, the biggest nonprofit to take a convention like that and go virtual. And on top of it, to do it all in-house, you know, we didn't hire out a company to come in and do it for us. You know, we built the structure from the ground up and, yeah. you know, and for 
a nonprofit that's that's mid range. You know, we're not the biggest. For us to have achieved that is is amazing. So, <laughs> wow, this is a day of congratulations in a way. For, for everybody and for ADP, which has grown and grown and grown, it's and that that hence the need for someone to to um, assume some of the logistical part of it, so that that Joel, Dr. Snyder, can continue to do his work and uh, especially um, conduct the Audio Description Project Institute. I have to really shout out, you know, before we run out of time, this year's. Um, Audio Description Project, Audio Description Institute was absolutely phenomenal. Um, we had yeah, yeah I, 60 folks joined, huh? 60 registrants from 22 states and three countries. We were able to offer four scholarships. And um, again, we, we, they, Dr. Snyder did it as an all virtual a five-day event, and um, we also we have to shout out to Deb Cook Lewis, who was the Zoom uh, coordinator, consultant, master extraordinaire. Yes, um, and kept things running, and uh, there was a wonderful staff. Uh, we had Joyce Adams and Elisa Jansen were the associate directors for the AD Audio Description Institute, and Susan Glass, Chris Snyder, and Deb Cook, and Deb, of course, were there as consumer consultants and then the Zoom coordinator. But I was able to sit in every morning um, and kind of observe and listen. And it the format worked beautifully. Um, there was just no trouble segueing in and Deb was able to arrange breakout rooms so that the the small sub the small teams could actually work on their projects in real time and some of them actually had were able to put together a video of their layer on the audio description on top of the video and share it with the group at the end and that hadn't been possible in the real time institute but uh, Joel Dr Snyder has received um, numerous email accolades um, we'll be trying to use those as ways to share them with people and to promote the program but it was just there's some remarkable testimonies as to the effectiveness of that method but also um, that that potential describers and experienced describers taking this um, course were able to to network and create really ongoing relationships so congratulations I it just we were yeah. thrilled so, and a little birdie tells me that we're going to, we're going to be repeating this um, around national this, this summer as well, right? Yes. Following, probably following in August, uh, it looks like we'll be, we'll be doing it. Generally, it's done twice a year, once during leadership meetings in February or, and here it was March following it. And then uh, sometime either during the convention, you know, when we're meeting in real time, it's, it's run as, as part of the convention. So um, congratulations. That was just a really wonderful. So I want to give uh, John the, the heads up that we'll be taking hands in a few moments. But um, as we as we transition into your new role, um, let's 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 remind folks about Batty and the deadlines for the ADP awards. And then uh, give us a little preview about what the, uh, the first two weeks of, of your new role was like and, and what the. Uh, what you'll be working on in the near future. Yeah, okay. The, and I know you talked about the Beatty Awards. Um, 
and that that is short for the benefits of audio description and education contest and uh that contest was open um and the deadline is tomorrow morning um and that's for young kids to um to for those who are, are who can't see or can't see well and they will uh choose an audio described film or video uh, through the defining caption media service they have a list of them and then they write their review of that description and so we're just about done i think there may be a few more entries that that dr schneider will share schneider will share tomorrow so that closes tomorrow and then uh the committee will meet and review and i believe in may early may those decisions will be announced and upcoming is the audio description projects 13th annual annual ADP awards. And uh, there are several different categories, uh, media, media individuals, media organizations, performing arts organizations, performing arts individuals, and uh, achievement in museums, visual art, visual centers, um, both, both for the organization and individuals. Then there's an international award. And then the two um, most prestigious awards, the Margaret, Fan Margaret Fanchtiel Memorial Award, um, and that's for research and development. And then the Barry Levine Memorial Award for career achievement in audio description. Those, the call for nominations will end on Friday, June 18th. So uh, if you want to get nomination material and learn more about it, just go to the uh, Audio Description Project's website. There will be a category on the main page, and that will be www.acv.org slash ADP. So, and stay tuned to Sunday Edition because we're going to partner and, and bring on some of the kids. And uh, later on in the year, we'll bring on some of the ADP award winners. Um, so tell us, tell us now about the new role and okay. the last two weeks and what you're looking forward to. Two weeks in, and I would say right now I'm still digesting and learning and building and contacting different subcommittee chairs. But my role is is really to coordinate the day-to-day -day needs and the, the delivery of projects that the ADP um, initiates. And, and that's through their steering committee and subcommittees. And so um, I coordinate... Um, with the audio description project committee chairs and for our steering committee, that's Kim Charlson and Carl Richardson. And then I meet regularly with um, Joel Snyder, who is our uh, founder and uh, senior consultant. And that will be a very close relationship. And then going, moving from there, that also involves working with the director of advocacy and that's Tony, uh, that's Clark Rockfall. And Tony Stevens, our Director of Development, um, Manager of Communications, who will be coming on board later this spring. And then Cindy um, Hollis, our Member Services Coordinator, because ADP has outreach into all those areas now. So, uh, so you're the go-to lady, huh? <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm like the hub. I guess the hub, and and I work with everyone else, and they work with me, and so I don't form the policy. I'm just helping to um, 
coordinate everything. Coordinate, you know, connect when there are times that so that one person needs to be communicating with another because they both have a great idea. We'll we'll be doing that. But I also work with Fred Brack, the webmaster extraordinaire, and with Tim Wynn, Timothy Wynn, who um, is our wonderful um, author of our ADP's daily described television schedule. Um, so those those members are key. Um, I would encourage everyone as, as I'm discovering, um, you know, to to dis- just explore the wealth of the, the web page. Yeah. Um, and again, you just go to that main web page. And if you have questions about the web page, you can always reach out to Fred Brack, the webmaster. His address is at the bottom of the main web page. Um, and it's F-B-R-T-A-C-K and isn't it amazing that you know we we as an organization have put so much effort talent love um and all those volunteer hours you talked about before into the adp project and and subsequently all of the offshoots that a position like yours is needed um you know that's another big round of congratulations for the organization at large and i can't (laughs) Yeah, I I can't express, you know, with with any, you know, any more excitement or love that that you're helming, you know, you're you're creating and and taking this position to where it's where it's going to be most effective. And so, John, I hope I'll be a facilitator. That's all. (laughs) (laughs) Let's start bringing on some folks to who also want to congratulate Jill Nan. We want questions. Okay, our first hand is Sheila Young. Sheila, you may talk. Ah, hi, Sheila. <laughs> you knew that there's no way I could let this go without me calling in and saying congratulations, Jolyn. Oh, well, I, I do you. Ha- I appreciate it so much, and I we got I got your meeting notice for tomorrow night. Or yeah, Jolyn and I get to work together on a few different committees. Um, we we work on the ADP Performing Arts Museums and Parks together and Beatty together and the Unity Project. So um, I'm just so thrilled. They could not have picked a better person. So congratulations and we'll, we'll talk tomorrow night. We will. Thank you, Sheila. Thank you, Sheila. You are mm-hmm. such a great Sunday edition. Um, you know, friends of the show. Thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Who's next, John? Anthony, uh, before I call the next hand, uh, Paul Schrader is in the room. Oh. All right, Paul, we will transition to you in a few moments. Let's let some folks uh, ask Jillian questions or congratulate. Thanks, Paul. Okay. We'll be with you soon. Our next hand is Deanna Noriega. You may talk. Can, congratulations, Jolyn. Oh, it's been forever since we've talked. When I used to be on the fundraising committee, I think it was yes. we would have frequent contact but um i'm delighted that you're stepping up to a new role and i and wish you all the success in the world thank you it's, thank you Deanna. it's a challenge but i'm i'm looking forward all right john patrick sheehan you may talk hey it's great to great to uh talk to both of you congratulations joe lynn thank you. Uh, i uh i am a part of the group that she'll be working with as far as uh, 508 audio description. 
uh, working with the federal government to try to increase uh, audio description within the federal government. So that's going to be, that's a large task and I appreciate the leadership that we have. So looking forward to that. The other um, project that I worked on with uh, Joe Lynn's assistance this year was the Uni Description Project, which had was great. Uh, yeah. 100, 125 people or something like that involved in it and just an amazing amount of excitement. Uh, the work that was done on that project is just amazing with uh, the Park Service just putting out some terrific um, brochures and so many talented people. That's, that's what I you know, see so much about uh, the audio description project is you get involved with so many people that have so much dedication and talent and they just want to share it. And that's just electric. So. Thank you, Pat. You'll be back to Sunday edition in a few weeks to talk about voting, right? We'll be there. We'll be there. Right. So, so great, great work is being done. Congratulations, Jolyn. And thanks, yeah. Well, thank you for all. All your right. Thanks, John. Who's up next? Pam Coffee, you made talk. Yes. Uh, I'm just a lowly chapter member. I'm not on 19 committees and no claim to fame, all that kind of stuff. But I just wanted to congratulate you on your new position. Oh, Pam, thank you oh. so much. Um, what does audio just how does audio description play a part in your life? That is a question I'm love to ask folks do you do you have just a quick well i really haven't had much of an opportunity to use it because mm -hmm. i don't have a fancy tv it's just a little cheap thing but um what little i have used something like audio description is when i have been on a tour of oh sometimes a museum or something and I don't know how many of these were done through the ADP specifically but I love it when I can go to a whatever museum uh, and at least have one of these little handheld recording uh, well handheld devices that plays an audio tour of the museum Absolutely. it just makes a lot of difference well we and pay attention to this year's national we've got a lot of great tours that are going to be uh presented oh yes i listened to those last summer as well the those are coming year. back this year some of them will be repeat and with oh, wonderful and then some new ones good i'm so glad thank you pam thank you john Thanks, Pam. And we'll see you on the community calls. Pam's a huge community call person. John, who's next? John? Uh -oh. Uh, hello. Um, I was muted. I'm sorry. Area code 407. You may unmute and talk. Okay, it's Jim Crock. Oh, hey, Mr. Crock, welcome to Sunday Edition. Thank you. I have to tell you that uh, 
the smile, charm, the enthusiasm that has made Jo Lynn what she is just shined through on this call. I am so glad that she is a welcome part of our <clears throat> full-time staff. She brings greatness to everything she does. And now I knew about <clears throat> her love of piano, but I didn't know about the voice part. So she has to collect a promised um, <clears throat> Chinese dinner at a phenomenal restaurant about 20 miles from where she now lives. And I grew up out there, so I know. <clears throat> and I guess I can... I can't get her to play the piano in the middle of the restaurant, but maybe I can stimulate her into some vocals. Oh. Uh, I, I just have to say, uh, JoLynn, you bring a bright light to ACB. Thank you for coming aboard. Jim, thank you so much. You are far too generous, but thank you. And I look Never. forward to that meal at Shift Juice. That will be fun. We'll John, have we'll a few more hands. We, I don't see any hands at this time. Oh, wait a minute. I spoke too soon. Jane Perry, you and you didn't talk. Hello, Joellen. This Hi. is Jane Perry from Falmouth, Massachusetts on Cape Cod. Oh. I consider myself the Cape Cod Connection. Oh. Um, I just want to say congratulations. I'm new to this call. This is my first time, but I think many people know that I have been calling in frequently on many other calls. And I thank you and the other gentlemen and Cindy Hollis for what you've done for our community. But I also want to say that it's really great to hear that you have two people working on audio description who are near and dear to me, and that's Kim Charlson and Carl Richardson. Absolutely. Absolutely. Very, very very long time and I have just rejoined our Bay State affiliate and I have joined many affiliates interest groups through these calls and I can't tell you how much I have learned and met new friends and I really hope that these continue well after the pandemic I attended my legislative session this year even though I have legislated and advocated and been on Capitol Hill with another organization but I wish I could have done it virtually because it's just a thrill to walk through those halls and know that you're going to be part of making a difference. And I really think that ACB is a great organization to be to belong to, and I'm thrilled to rejoin again. So thank you, and good luck. And maybe sometime thank we you. can meet. I hope and so. welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. All right, John, I'll go with two more if we have them, and then we'll go to Paul. Okay, let's see if there's any hands. Any hands? I don't see any hands at this time, sir. All right. Well, Joe Lynn, if they have any questions about audio description and or grants, um, your ACB email address is. And uh, I'm ready here. It's J Bailey, B-A-I-L-E-Y hyphen page, like a page in a book, P-A-G-E at ACB dot org. Or you can. Oh, yeah, sorry, I also I have a phone number if folks want to call, leave a message. Usually the message will, uh, the machine will pick up, but I will always call back. And that's 202-467-5083. And it will be extension 15083. All right. And give them that ADP website again. I think everybody knows it by now, but just in case. 
Okay, it's www.acb.org slash ADP, and that will take you to the main webpage. Thank you so much for joining Sunday Edition, and congratulations, good luck, and please come back when we uh, when we feature the Beatty uh, Award winners, as well as uh, when we do some ADP programming. Love oh, you very much. I would love to to keep folks updated on a regular basis. There's so much that's coming coming up and going on. So, well, you always have a platform here on Sunday Edition. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Thank you so much I'm for joining going us. To be listening to Paul now. Welcome, Paul. <laughs> well, that was a great transition. Okay. Welcome, 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 Paul. Hey, thank you so much. How are you, sir? I am great, and so I, I'm sorry I missed a lot of the previous session because I love audio description and uh, I love what Jolyn's doing. So that was great to hear a little bit of the end, anyway. So you are no stranger to ACB. The folks, uh, the folks out there, know of you, know um, your previous role at Ira, and a lot of us uh, were thrilled to find out about your new position. But let's start off by getting to know who Paul is. Can you? Uh, can you tell us where you're from and, and a little bit about your life up until you got to ACB and then how you found and became a part of ACB? It's the Paul Schrader History Show, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, that's fun. Thanks. Thanks, Anthony. Um, I am from upstate New York. I was actually born in Niagara Falls, which is one of those fun little trivia facts I love to share with people because people, unless you've been there, you don't recognize that there's actually a city. It's like... Um, like if you go to Disney and you don't realize, you know, there's all there's all this Orlando Central Florida around there. So um, yeah, Niagara Falls, New York, and lived there for <clears throat> just outside of there for about eight years. And then my parents moved to near Batavia, New York, which for some might make sense because I was actually enrolled at the School for the Blind there uh, in Batavia as a as a wee lad, uh, I lost my sight when I was an infant. So I'm a retinoblastoma kid. And um, uh, so I went to the New York State School for the Blind as a commuter student for a couple of years. Uh, and then, um, and then uh, my parents moved closer by so I could be a day student. So I grew up in Batavia, for those who don't know. And I don't know why you wouldn't know. I mean, Batavia, it is like everybody knows it's Batavia. <laughs> it's a hub. It's a hub, baby. Uh, it is right between Buffalo and Rochester, almost equidistant on throughway. So it's a, it's a, it actually is kind of a hub when you think about it. It's a heavily traversed area, um, even though it's a pretty small town. And what, um, when did you first interact with ACB? My first interaction with ACB was 1983 in Phoenix. <clears throat> and, uh, or, you know, might've been slightly before then I actually went to school in Washington, DC. So I may have met a few ACB people, uh, while I was at American university, but I had not had any interaction, uh, prior to that point with the organization. I applied for a scholarship. I think I shared this story on the national stage. I didn't get it. Um, and you know, so I'm still a little bitter. But I'm still I'm working through it. I'm working through it. I'm, I'm almost okay now. <laughs> Just a couple more years. <laughs> a couple more years, and I'll be I'll be over it. Um, but uh, but I decided to come anyway. Or maybe uh, maybe maybe somebody encouraged me that you know I should go, and and I did, and I had a great time. Got to know the student group, and um, 
uh, got involved with the student group a little bit and then got to know uh, Oral Miller, who was then the national representative, Scott Marshall, who is the governmental guy, and some other folks when I got back to D.C. Incidentally, for full disclosure purposes, I went, uh, I, I guess I loved Phoenix so much, I went back the next year for the National Federation of the Blind Convention there in, uh, in Phoenix in 1984. So that was my, my first introduction to both organizations came back to back. And then along the lines, you, uh, you ended up working for ACB in uh, the position, I believe, that Clark Rock fell out. Rock yep. fell yeah, that's, that's right. So in the 80s, as I understand it, ACB was having some trouble uh, toward the late 80s. And Scott Marshall, who had been government affairs director, had moved on. And I think they were running, uh, they were having some trouble figuring out if they could fund the position. And then they decided to do it. Oh, around 90, 91. And um, I, um, I had gotten to know ACB Ohio a little bit, and I give lots of credit to or blame, depending on how you guys want to look at it, to Deborah Kendrick, who encouraged mm. me to apply for the ACB position, uh, the governmental position. And at that, in Ohio, I was working for a governor, uh, an office for uh, an advocacy for people with disabilities. And that governor was term limited, so his his uh, he was done in 1990. Um, his party did not win the election in '90, and uh, while I wasn't told I needed to leave, I you know kind of assumed that eventually they would figure out <laughs> who's this Paul Schrader and why is he why is he here, uh, and they might say you know you were the other guy, so time to move on. Anyway, so I applied for and uh, uh, got to meet. Uh, <clears throat> Oral Miller and Leroy Saunders was, was my first introduction really to ACB at that level was, that was an interview with those two. And uh, it was very interesting, uh, a different sort of interview. Anybody who knows Leroy knows he's, he's a, he, he is definitely a character, uh, very strategic guy. And sometimes, um, you know, I think sometimes people from the South, we, those of us who didn't grow up in the South, maybe discount them a little bit and, I, I learned very quickly that Leroy was was a super strategic thinker, and uh, uh, he may have he may have a little bit of a drawl. He may talk a little slow, but uh, uh, he was he was a force to be reckoned with. So that was a good introduction for me to the organization. So I'll ask you a twofold question: What stands out about your time in uh, in in the office, and what did you learn about yourself in that position? So the office was uh, a really interesting group. So it was me, uh, Nolan Crabb was, was running the Braille Forum at that point, editor of the Braille Forum. Oral, of course, was the national rep. And uh, <clears throat> we had a cadre of some staff who were uh, assistants and helping and, and just a really fine group of people um, working with us. I think the the thing that stood out for me, for, for those who will recall that time, it was a, it was a, difficult period uh, in blindness politics was also a fascinating period, right? So 1991, right after the enactment of the ADA, heavy regulatory, uh, so a lot of effort to to put regulations in place, especially, uh, well, no, not especially. I mean, it it was the end of the, what would be the end of uh, Bush one. Obviously, we didn't know that at the time uh, in the beginning of the Clinton administration, but the Bush one administration ran most of the regulatory work initially. And just super job. Uh, Attorney General Thornburg and others just did a, a terrific 
Terrific job. So I, I got heavily engaged in the vicissitudes of federal regulation, which is not something I knew very much about. Uh, and I needed to learn uh, quickly and, and, and on the job. But what I was going to say is in terms of blindness politics and, and disability politics, it was a bit of a, a challenging time because people will recall detectable warnings, uh, the domes, the truncated domes that are on platforms and uh, uh, flat curbs and things like that uh, were not uh, called for at the time. And there was a lot of effort around regulate, regulation to put those in place. ACB and NFB vehemently disagreed uh, about those, and um, uh, ACB was pro, and that was my job was to try to carry that forward and carry that message. And we, we, we had some, I mean, very difficult battles. Uh, I'm just, you know, there's no, there's no sugarcoating it. It was, a, it was a very stressful time in many ways. I was, you know, relatively young in my career, uh, and uh, I learned quickly uh, about you know, how to, how to battle. But I think and hope that I also learned that you could argue vehemently, passionately on issues on which there was like a fundamental disagreement, but then you could still in maybe the following work, work with that same person on something else. And I think we did that. Uh, we argued very, very, very vociferously with the National Federation of the Blind in particular on detectable warnings. And then we worked together on Braille. And so um, I, I felt, it, I guess it set for me a pattern for the rest of my work life, which was to really try to live that no permanent enemies uh, thing that people talk about in politics and policy. And so it wasn't always easy, but, uh, you know, we, we did that. And, you know, I think Jim Gashel, who was my counterpart at NFB, who had a lot more experience than I did at that time, and I, you know, were able to have a, a pretty decent working relationship. Nice. I know that, uh, you know, we, we, uh, we promote that, you know, the personal story uh, really brings a highlight to, to the initiative, so to speak. And um, you mentioned uh, truncated domes. And I know that there was a lot, um, you know, a lot of cross-sectionality between personal experiences and, and um, some pretty high and, and emotional losses that went along with that fight. Did um did that shape you in in the way that you would advocate in the future? Yes, I think it did. I, I yes, and you were absolutely right. It did teach me the importance of the of the personal story uh, that you really have to. Um, as a, a, a future friend of mine would say, uh, Ellen Dinsmore, who I, work, who I worked with at AFB American Foundation for the Blind, you have to put the hay down where the goats can get it. And it was really, it was a wonderful aphorism that kind of helps you understand that things, policy is local to sort of twist that phrase a little bit. Policy is personal. Uh, and so it is important to make that, that, that point. It, funny little aside, uh, many years later, my daughter was home on winter break from college and uh, I, we had a, we were, it was the early run up to the Communications and Video Accessibility Act <clears throat> to the passage of that, which we'll get to in a little bit. But um, I brought her into a lobbying meeting because she was thinking about policy, political science. And, uh, you know, I brought her into a meeting I was having with one of the organizations that we had had pretty difficult disagreements with in the past, but now it was a little more, a little better, the, the, the relationship. Anyway, so I'm telling the story about video description and why it's important. And we walk out and she's like, dad, I said, what do you think? She said, dad, 
you got to bring more pathos. I'm like, what? Like, yeah. It's like, yeah, thank, thanks. I appreciate you going to college and reminding me of your big SAT words. Uh, so yeah, got to bring it, make it personal. You got to, you got So she's like, you know, you just, you just were too, you're too high-minded. You, you got to make, you got to make it clear. You got to bring the pathos. So yeah, I've kept that, you know, we learn lessons from our kids and that's, uh, that's fun. That's an awesome, humbling um, (laughs) (laughs) reminder that, yeah, it comes from all directions. And and as much as, you know, with a parent, we're also always still the child. Wow. Well, you know, I'm lucky to have kids that are definitely smarter than me. Uh, So it's probably their mom's (laughs) doing. Well, that speaks to both parents. But no. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you had your time at American Council of Blind and you felt some um, or an opportunity came along. Where'd you go next? So uh, both my wife and I, we kind of call ourselves Midwest. She grew up in Akron, Ohio, so she's truly Midwest. But I think of Buffalo, uh, which is what I identify as Buffalo, New York, uh, as Midwest. It's Great Lakes, right? So it's all part of that Great Lakes Basin. Yeah. And, uh, so, and the whole yeah, thing. exactly. So we were kind of <laughs> lo- we were kind of longing to get back to the Midwest, and uh, an opportunity with the American Foundation for the Blind came up in Chicago uh, in '94, and it came at a good time. We had uh, one daughter at that point who was uh, uh, going to be four that fall, and uh, it, it seemed like a, a good opportunity to kind of explore the Midwest, and it, you know if that was going to be a good place for us. Um, AFB was an interesting organization then. Uh, it was kind of devolving from a very robust regional structure. They had had a bunch of regional offices. Uh, and at the time I joined, Chicago was still one, and, and they still had a few others. But uh, within six or seven years, most of those were gone. Um, Chicago would be closed. But anyway, yeah, so I, so I went to Chicago. And I, I will often say that I'm, I think I'm the only person ever to have lived in Chicago who, when you at, when people say, "Oh, how do you like Chicago?" I don't rave about it. It's it, my usual answer is, "Yeah, it's fine, it's nice," but it's definitely not a place I rave about. It's okay. There's, there's nothing terrible about it. It's a fine city, and Chicago boosters out there, you know. Look, you don't have to convince me because my wife loves Chicago, and and she always wants to come come back. Um, but for me, it was always yeah. I was kind of, I was still moored to Washington. Um, I spent every, probably at least every month, I would take a trip into D.C in the nineties because working on advisory committees and things of that nature. Yeah. Presume and, and uh, even conference calls that's back in the day when you had to hop on a plane or a train. That is absolutely true. Meeting. When I, when I left Washington in 94, uh, an older uh, advocate colleague of mine said, you'll be back. It's Potomac fever. You'll, you'll be back. And I said, I don't know. And he said, yeah, you will. He's right. <laughs> But you transitioned through several positions at AFB. So what stands out for you about your time there? So Carl Augusto had started at AFB in 91, I think. So he had been there a few years, and that was a a bit of a sea change uh, in the way he took the organization and some of the directions. When I got there in 94, they were looking for somebody to put more of a focus on technology. Um, A lot of interesting stuff was happening. You know, this, this... this crazy thing called Windows had just come out. Um, and uh, this company you might have heard of called Microsoft <laughs> was sort of emerging on the scene. And there was a lot of, a lot of uh, really good stuff happening. Uh, the internet was beginning to be a thing that people were aware of. Um, 
and uh, the early uh, the early protocols would would soon be morphed into the World Wide Web. Um, so a lot of interest in technology and a lot of realization that this was going to be huge uh, for people with disabilities, people who are blind. We had already begun to do some work at the national policy level around telecommunications accessibility. And I was doing that when I was at ACB. <clears throat> and then, uh, you know, AFB wanted to get in on that too. So, um, so I moved to Chicago, which is kind of a weird place, but that's where, the, I mean, to talk, to say that that's where we were going to pivot to technology from. For technology, yeah. Yeah, but uh, it was where the job was. And it also gave me a chance to work with, you know, folks in the region, because as I said, we did still have a little bit of a regional structure. So the idea was to get to know rehabilitation and education leaders uh, in that area. So one of the interesting things that was happening was, you know, rehab rehabilitation agencies, there was an effort to combine them. There was an effort to close or combine schools for the blind. Wisconsin went through that while I was there. So I came up and talked to the legislature in Wisconsin and in North Dakota. Um, so there was those things happening as well. So sort of bread and butter blindness. But the, the, the thing that I think everybody knew I was more passionate about was what we could do with this technology accessibility work, both trying to get Microsoft to do better uh, to make sure Windows was accessible to help screen reader developers and um, to uh, where, where we could put policies in place that would drive that. So I'd like to take a little interesting side road, if you don't mind. Um, you know, I think our community has a has a really sharp divide when it comes to Microsoft. You know, there are the ones that will proclaim that, you know, it's Microsoft that paved the way for everything that came forward as far as accessibility is concerned. You know, and then the other side of that coin. Um, and we're facing a, a very interesting antitrust now with social media. And of course, Microsoft, you know, was the, the largest example of, of, a micro, of an antitrust uh, investigation slash, you know, um, it, it, <laughs> I don't even know what to call it at this point. But, um, you know, they, we, you know, we're facing an, another one of those. Do you think the lessons learned from that time period will be applied to, you know, to social media, the social media giants that are being looked at now? You know, I look at this a little bit, and I'm going to step back for just a second even further, because when I came of age in, when I was a young man, uh, in the technology world, in 19, which was really 91, when I got to ACB, people started, started talking to me about this telecommunications stuff. That was in the, uh, the, the dawn or the dusk, I don't know, whichever, it, it was at the end of the AT&T breakup <laughs> that created the regional Bell operating companies. Um, I actually had something called a LATA map on the wall of my office, which, which was not accessible, but I just thought it was, it was so geeky. It was funny. And, and LATAs were local area transport yeah. somethings. Uh, they were, they are essentially area, uh, uh, not area codes, but the other codes, the, the, the sub codes, um, to tell you where things were. Anyway, I don't remember exactly what LATAs were, but they were geeky telephone map things. And I just thought it was funny, but anyway, so you had the regional bells, uh, and it's, Largely that, um, you know, the, the, a lot of those folks had come out of AT&T and AT&T had done some good accessibility work. And so now we had seven companies where at least several of them had pretty good staff who were interested in accessibility and also interested in shaking off some of the things that were imposed in that antitrust uh, in that breakup uh, in the, from the 80s. And so that's what gave rise to the, tele, the Communications Act Amendment of 96, which were huge, right? And 
I mean, it, it's a whole other conversation, but fascinating thing to think about. The work on that really began in the early 90s, kind of under Bush, then under Clinton, and then under a Newt Gingrich, very Republican Congress with, with a, very, a whole different set of ideas than had been yeah. uh, at the rise on the Hill, right? So that was interesting just in itself to see how that changed. But in, in, the pro, in, the, in the process, we did get some disability accessibility language in, and it was really largely because we had friends in the Bell, Bell Operating Network. So fast forward to Microsoft and then to now. So I think a lot of us were interested in what might happen to Microsoft in the 90s, as, but, but I don't think most of us really understood, at least, at least I didn't, and I don't remember too many others that really understood what the antitrust implications might be if Microsoft got broken up, if the operating system was separated from the... Uh, office suite and stuff. Um, and so I, I can't speak to too much of that, but I can say that I think there, it's certainly the, 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 when that kind of thing is happening, it does create opportunities for the disability community to have yes. a role to play. It also creates some challenges, but you know, the old proverb of, you know, when the elephants dance, the grass gets trampled. I think the thing we have to watch is, not only not getting trampled, but can we be some of the shoots that grow up um, in, in between? And, and so I think when Microsoft gets distracted and gets pressured and when there's beginning to be some state push to address accessibility, it really opened the opportunity for us to push harder on Internet Explorer and Windows accessibility. And that created a lot of that opportunity in the 90s. What will happen now? I, I don't know. I do follow it a little bit. I don't claim to be that knowledgeable about it. I think it's I think it's fascinating. I don't know what we do with the Facebooks of the world. I mean, I'm very concerned about news and uh, the way news is conveyed and the way viewpoints are conveyed. And I, I think Facebook has, you know, has had a has had a little bit of a troubling role to play. But it but you know, is it Facebook's fault or is it humans' fault because of the way we get attracted to negative? Absolutely. I want to go back to some of the policy a little later on, but we left off with, with you and, and your time at AFB. Um, I, I am sure that that was a period of time that, that spurned a lot of, of um, personal growth and, and a lot of understanding of, of the world that we live in. What, um, where did you go next? And, and what was that like? Yeah, AF, so, so those days in Chicago were interesting. Susan Spungen uh, at AFB was my, was my boss, and then Carl Augusto was the head of the organization. I learned a lot from both of them. Um, I learned particularly a lot, I think, from Carl and about how to handle and work with people, how to manage people, um, and um, you know, uh, how to be uh, hopefully a more uh, engaging supervisor. Um, I still got lessons to learn. I'll probably retire with a few lessons yet to learn, but that um, was a good, AFE was a great place to work with a lot of really smart people. And uh, I, I, you know, I thoroughly enjoyed getting to work on the technology. I had a lot of freedom to do technology and a lot of opportunity to work with the Washington DC office, which kind of brought me back to, as I said, I kept flying to Washington. A good old so fever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Kept my and when Scott Marshall started making noises about maybe going over to the Federal Communications Commission, this was after the Communications Act passed. So we've got some accessibility language. We've got Federal Communications now having a stake in the accessibility world, uh, and so you know he decided to make that, and I decided I would go for his job uh, as the governmental person for AFB. Seemed like a good step, and so yeah, in two thousand. 
I came back. You know, it's always it's interesting. I left in '94, just prior to the Republican Revolution. I came back in 2000, just prior to the to the George Bush administration, George Bush two administration. So I've I've been I've been I've left and come during pretty big inflection points in political political world. <laughs> and here you are doing it again, but we'll get to that in a little while. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You know, there's there's you know a lot of, of difference of opinion on whether or not uh, the Telecommunications Act uh, really did what it what it could have and should have done for us. What are your thoughts on that? And is it time for a total overhaul? So, there, you know, the, the the Telecom Act was really an exciting time. I learned so much about opportunities and you know what what technology could do and that you know this, we're talking the 90s right things were still pretty primitive but i also yeah learned, i love those uh, commercials that say back in the <laughs> you know we were still faxing it and <laughs> yeah yeah uh, it, it, do you, you know the, the sound of the old dial-up modems it's, <laughs> it still sends terror down my spine yes. a little bit I, i'm not gonna lie to you um, and i remember like having a dongle that was great. So you could hear when bits were actually transmitting. So you knew it was actually working because <laughs> it was so damn slow. Yes. Um, so, <laughs> when you had six or seven different floppy disks that you had to pull out and put yeah, back in. Yeah. When, when yeah. you would buy a program and it would come on four or six disks, you had to keep moving through to, to load it. <laughs> Fun times, Anthony. <laughs> Do you remember when you were like seventy five percent through the progress, and something happened, and it was yeah, like and you had to start, start over. all over again? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember. It's all things. it's all horrible. <laughs> so, but we were, um, yeah, yeah. It was, it was it was anyway interesting time. What I what I chiefly learned was that politics, uh, that policy and technology is. Uh, that don't mix that well. And I mean, a lot of people talk about, right, the technology outstrips policy. It's part of the, part of the challenge with these, these monopoly antitrust uh, questions with, with Facebook and Amazon and Microsoft and Google and Apple um, is, is that the, 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 the technology efforts and opportunities have far outstripped the policy issues to sort of keep a, a handle on things and, and keep fairness. Anyway, um, I saw the beginning of that in the '90s because, as the internet dawned, it was it was pretty well agreed upon regulatory policy that there should be no no hands on, uh, keep yeah. your mitts off was the was the word of the day, and uh, that made it hard for disability accessibility stuff because you know it was hard to get a carve out. Nobody really thought about disability accessibility that much at the time, and so we could maybe ride another policy change but not necessarily our own. And so it's hard to get a carve out and it was um, hard to get the language because if they said, well, we can, we can regulate for disability accessibility. Well, then we could regulate for a whole bunch of other things as well. So anyway, so that was a challenge. And, and I think that left us with telecom equipment and services as the place we could work with because it was, yeah. pure, there was a regulatory regime the FCC could impose and they were willing to, to live with it. Uh, and embrace accessibility. So that's why we got 255. It was a good start. I'll say the biggest heartbreak for me was my nascent efforts at trying to get video description into that bill because that bill in 96 is what created caption. It didn't create captioning, but it's what grew captioning to near universal right. status. Yeah. And we and we tried to get a, a provision in for video description to start growing it. And, you know, most 
many know, you may have even talked about this, that it got, it got shot down by the court of appeals later, but the heartbreak for me came, uh, when I was still in Washington working for ACB, I got a call from um, the staff or a member of Congress at home. It was literally the only time I have ever warranted that. A, an evening call from a member of Congress staff who said, I'm sorry, we cannot get video description in the bill. It's just, it's the, it's the red line. It's the line that we can't cross. And we can do everything else on accessibility, but we can't do that. And, you know, that was heartbreaking. Um, we got language in that called for, you know, a study and that's what got a little bit of description started in the year 99 or 2000. Uh, and that, and that turned out to be good because ultimately we went back to that with the communications and video accessibility act and some description had already been going on CBS to its enduring credit had done description. Of course, PBS was doing it. Fox had done some and was, I think, continuing to do some. So, um, you know, it, it wasn't all loss in, in the court of appeals decision. And, uh, and then in 2010, we came back and we got, you know, we got what we got today. So where audio description stands now, are you, are you proud? Um, do you think we, you know, do you think we've reached, I don't want to say a plateau, but do you, do you think we've brought it to, you know, upfront enough to, to where it's, you know, it's a player on the field, so to speak. And the subsets of, you know, quality control and, and how many hours, et cetera, you know, what, what's the big fight now, in your opinion? Should we be focusing more on quality or and, and how many networks are, you know, are, are, are um, embracing the tech, you know, embracing it and, and providing it? Or, you know, should we be should we be more focused on getting all the streaming or getting everybody on the same page? You know, I, I, with audio description, I feel like we have achieved more than I would have thought uh, that we would when we, we've got streaming services to agree to do it. Amazon Prime agreed to do it. I mean, so Netflix, I mean, and yeah, some of it was, some of it was some very hard nosed pressure and some of it was, you know, some softer pressure, but yes, it has taken pushes to get these things done. Uh, and these aren't required in in the law, as we're often reminded, which does you know give one fear that they could go away. Um, so I don't know. I mean, audio description is not, I think, where captioning is, and part of that's policy. I mean, captions got a huge head start, and part of it is that the main that the general public has found a use for captioning in sports bars and health clubs and places like that where they yeah. can't hear TVs, and so there is not a similar. There are niches, you know, where we talk about audio description could be useful for this or that, but um, it does not have that same kind of general appeal. I mean, I often joke that if somebody tried to put in a, a bill to remove caption requirements, the, the deaf community would be the least of their problem. Um, it would be the, the gyms yeah. and sports bar crowds that would be outraged. And so, you know, obviously that ain't going to happen. Um, we don't have that with audio description yet. And I also... I, you know, I think we're just reaching a point where our community, I mean, I was intrigued with, you know, one of your earlier callers who said she really hasn't experienced it that much. And, you know, some of that's, some of that's equipment and affordability and stuff. And some of that is just exposure. And we haven't necessarily had the deep yeah. exposure. We didn't have the, the support in the department of education that captioned it early on. We do now <clears throat> um, with audio description. So I don't know the answer. I, I am I satisfied? Absolutely not. Um, I think we, you know, we need 
we need a lot more. I'd, I'd love universal. Um, I'd also love a serious effort around quality. I get that there's challenges. Um, I mean, I lived through those last year as part of the Disability Advisory Committee and working with uh, Carl and, and others. Uh, and, and Carl is, is, a, is such a gracious and wonderful partner, by the way. I heard his name mentioned yes. earlier. Yeah. Um, he was always so thoughtful to call me up after these meetings where I was, uh, I was trying to run a subgroup and, and he, you know, he, he was expressing, let me know what I need to do. I'll be supportive. I'll help you in any way I can. So, um, anyway, so uh, quality is going to be, going to be tough. Uh, the industry doesn't want it. Uh, they don't want to live with those requirements. Uh, and, but I, I think we will get there because I think there will be a push as more and more description is out there people will understand what's good and what's not good. I've asked this question on, on other shows and, and as someone who I respect as an advocator uh, very much, I, I think, um, you know, coming from an intersectionality of LGBTQ and, um, you know, and, and disability, um, a large push force, a lot of LGBTQ advocacy came from, you know, the buying power, the dollars that we have to spend um, and I don't think, uh, you know, as a disabled community, I understand the the dichotomy of, well, if, you know, if we use the buying power, then we can't necessarily use the employment statistics and things in other areas. Do you think, do you think that our dollar power is, is, um, you know, is a tool that we should be using for, a, for audio description advocacy? Um, I... I don't know the answer. I, it, it, it's a good question. I think I think it would be help. I think it would be limited by the fact that I'm not sure that we have the buying power that you know we'd like to have. Um, uh, I, I think you know a lot of people talk about the business impact, the the return on investment in accessibility generally, whether it's audio description or anything else. Um, and and there there are people who can show it that there is there is there is benefit, but I don't think it's as good or as strong as the benefit for some other communities, perhaps where buying power or uh, re- re- removing <laughs> removing purchase uh, sends sends a clear message. I, so I I don't know that we're there yet in terms of having that kind of power. I do think that. One of the places, see, one of the things that audio description ought to benefit from is a really strong cultural leader connection, uh, influencer connection. I, I, I just have yeah. to believe if we could break through, yeah. and it's that's pl- one of the places where I really admire the LGBTQ uh, advocacy movement is there's huge uh, breakthroughs with influencers, both who are within the community and who are you know adjacent and embracing the community uh, as friends and colleagues. And, you know, we, we should be able to get there with audio description because I think anyone who experiences it, who's not blind, thinks it's freaking amazing um, and is really intrigued and is really interested. And so I think there's, I think there, given that it's such a heavily entertainment oriented effort anyway, we ought to, we ought to have more influencers. And I, I don't know how, to, I don't know how to get to those people. That's not my thing, but those who do, man, I, 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 I we should, we should be building that. Yeah, you raise you raise a, a point that I that I sing that I sing to. Um, I mean, you take a look at at the you know Magic Johnsons and the Madonnas and what they've done for the LGBTQ community. If we had influence influencers like that, yeah. um, you know, taking up the mantle of of ADP. I mean, think about if um, you know the showrunners for let's say Game of Thrones 
put out a huge campaign for 80, uh, for, I'm sorry, ADP audio description, all the acronyms are in my head. Um, <laughs> but like, you know, Game of Thrones, um, you know, Shonda Rhimes and, and all of her, uh, you know, her immense empire of, of uh, influence, you know, something, if someone like that stood, you know, stood by uh, a campaign for audio description, it might, it might take the landscape up, you know, mountain Everest level. And I feel but, like that's doable. I mean, I, I, I feel do, like we've too. got people who could make that happen again. It's just, it's, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a celebrity culture. I don't really understand that culture, but I know that, I know that that, that feels very real, realistic to me. We put some pressure on, um, on the showrunner. Sony is uh, the owner of the, of days of our lives. Uh, it's a, a, a soap opera on NBC mm-hmm. and um, we put some pressure on them. Uh, as a soap opera group, actually, with uh, with with um, those of us that were blind and low vision within that group, and uh, Days of Our Lives now currently runs audio description five days a week. Whoa! Um, seriously, I didn't know. That. Seriously, I yeah, did not know so, there was any movement in the soap opera world. That is, yeah, I remember really trying cool. to put pressure on the other three. Um, but more importantly, we're trying to get Sony and and uh, Corday Productions, which is you know the uh, the producers of of Days of Our Lives, to to stand up and and you know come out publicly with with how this affects the audience and you know how great as uh, you know of an addition to their programming structure it has become. Um, <laughs> so everybody out there listening, please send NBC Corday Productions and Sony emails and let them know that you know you'd like them to. To uh, stand, you know, speak publicly about how much you know the show has been impacted by by adding audio description. Um, sorry, I tend to go down rabbit holes. Um, uh, no, not at all. I think that's <laughs> I think that's I think that's great. Uh, it, yeah, it's, it, because it opens up another area that really hasn't been. You know, we talk about prime time. Uh, and no, kids. I'm extremely proud. Um, I'm extremely proud. And and aver- in the advertising space, I am told that one, I, I don't remember which company it is. I think it's Ikea, but one of the companies that has produced an audio, uh, you know, an audio described commercial did so because of their, um, one of their network executive, one of their executives, excuse me, who is a huge Days of Our Lives fan heard the audio description and said, Oh, we should be doing this with our commercials. So, you know, the, the luck meets opportunity slash, you know, being the right place at the right time component also, you know, can't be undervalued. And so, yeah, 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 absolutely. That's, that's (laughs) a cool story, man. And, and, uh, you know, mentioning NBC gives me a chance to, uh, to, uh, give chops to, and props and all that to Tom Litkowski uh, at Comcast, who, you know, when you get someone like Tom in place, they can move stuff forward in a way that is incredible. Um, he's, you know, he's at the top of his game and, you know, that, so hence we get described Olympics and, and activities like that, which is just really neat. Yeah. And we are looking forward to the Olympics this year. Let's go back onto uh, the Paul train. <laughs> um, and let's, you know, I want to talk about your new role. So let's skip forward. I do not want to leave Ira out because I know a lot of people are interested in your journey with Ira. Um, tell us a little bit about your time with them. Yeah, I will. So, yeah, so, so I was, uh, ha- happy to be at, at AFB and, and lots of opportunities from 2000 to 2016, actually just to finish up the political stuff. Um, I left, sure. I left AFB in October of 2016. So yet again, uh, right at an election inflection point. <laughs> <laughs> That's the theme of your life, Mr. Ball. It is the theme of my life. And then I return in 2020 at yet another one. Um, so, 
you know, because of the technology interest and uh, work, you know, we launched Access World while I was there and I was proud to be part of that. Um, so I'd been following a lot of policy and action. And I started seeing, I saw, I saw two companies who were talking about doing this distance, this re- using video, uh, remote video connectivity to provide information. And we had actually thought about that at AFB early on using a broadband connection to see if we could, could we teach people skills at home if they had a decent camera and had a broadband connection. Um, we don't, I don't think we ever submitted the, the concept as a grant, but we thought it would be interesting to try. Um, and so I'd been intrigued by it. And I, you know, I'd certainly seen people do primitive early versions, obviously FaceTime, people were doing stuff. Um, so I started, I saw two companies that were interested in looking at it. And Ira seemed to be the one that was actually had a prototype. Suman likes to tell the story that when I met him in probably 2015 at CSUN, it might've been 16, but it was early on in Ira. Um, so it's probably 15, you know, I came and, and I was interested in this idea, but I was also skeptical and, and he had a prototype that was very crude, uh, and really long delay uh in, in the signal and that's like you know i he says i was more dismissive than i probably was but i probably was a bit of a jerk about it like yeah okay if you ever get this working let me know this is terrible i, could, yeah. I couldn't live with this so, great idea no yeah, like, good idea and then come back <laughs> this, this kind of delay would you know i could eat a sandwich between the time that the uh, the, the video got translated and the audio came back um so he did. And, uh, you know, so I, I kind of kept, in, I kept a little bit in touch. And when I left AFB, I was looking around for things to do. I thought, you know, Ira, I don't know anything about their technology, really. I'm not a, I'm, in spite of being a tech policy person, I always tell people I am the, you know, one, I'm at the low end of technology skill. And because uh, people would sometimes ask, especially in the early days, well, you know, what do I do with the screen reader? And I'd say, no, don't, don't ask me. <laughs> I am not the person to ask. <laughs> uh, but I can tell you why there's a policy in place <laughs> that, will, <laughs> that may or may not help you. Uh, so, so, I, so I said, you know, I think Ira needs, I, I could talk, I could do some of the political work for them because I think they could use some political connections. It's a cool idea. They wanted, they wanted something like a relay, a telecommunications relay that supports telephone calls for deaf people with the uh, interpreters and, and the relay assistants. They wanted something like that for Ira and said, you know, we can't graft it onto relay. There's, there's specific reasons for that, but we could, you know, start talking about, start trying to lay the groundwork for what a policy could look like that would support remote video interpreting or information access for blind people. And anyway, so that, so I, I met Suman again, uh, we had a nice conversation and uh, I came on as a consultant and then joined full time and started to try to develop some congressional support um, and a, a little bit of support within the administration, what they were doing. And now you have taken on a bold new role again in a time of political. Um... <laughs> <laughs> wow! <laughs> so tell us uh, what what brought you to um, <clears throat> what brought you to your new role. So uh, APH, the American Printing House for the Blind, yes, um, yes. certainly certainly an organization that I've known about for forever. Um, I tell people now that I. 
used some of their early products in my early days at the New York State School for the Blind. Certainly books and uh, some of the tools they made. Uh, I think I swiped an abacus when I left the school, and I'm pretty sure it's an APH abacus. Um, so <laughs> I still have it. Uh, I'm not, my abacus skills are, not, are a little shaky, but I still have it. Um, so I'd known about them. And they, they had a, a, a gentleman by the name of Gary Mudd who was doing their government relations based in Louisville. So he would come into D.C., you know, several times a year, do some meetings on the Hill. Uh, and I knew Gary, one of the, just one of the most decent, probably the the best human I've ever had the, the pleasure to work with. Just, just a gentleman, a super guy, very motivated and dedicated by the mission of APH very much, you know, wanted to make sure the kids, it doesn't only serve kids, but predominantly K-12 students. And uh, it really had a passion for making sure they, they were getting the fair fair shake. And so since 1879, believe it or not, the American Printing House for the Blind has had a federal designation. There's been a policy called the uh, Act to Promote the Education for the Blind that named this institution in Louisville, Kentucky, as the primary provider of educational aids and books for blind students throughout the country. And that, that really came about because of some of the early schools for the blind recognized there needed to be a central, especially a printing source uh, yeah. as, 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 as uh, people who are geeks about these things will know in the late 19th century, there were several different methods for printing books, braille. a couple of different yeah. large print and, and braille was sort of nascent. And there was a couple of different versions, New York point, And I don't know what all. And so, it was it it's it, it was expensive to produce any one, but it was certainly expensive to produce multiples. So uh, they knew they needed uh, these schools for the blind. Knew they needed a, a place where that could. And, and Kentucky had already supported APH at that point, so they thought, why not? Um, so since eighteen seventy nine, there's been a uh, designation, and and the, over the years, the the funding has changed a little bit, but starting back in I want to say the nineteen eighties, uh, it's been a a line item appropriation under the special institutions for persons with disabilities line in the department of education budget that funds the American printing house. That's the same line where Gallaudet and Helen Keller uh, national center and the national technology Institute for the deaf are funded. So is it fair to say that in, in the last couple of years, the APH is, is, rebranding itself um, and is pushing forward as uh, as the leader in in educational um, uh, uh, pieces components moving into the age that we're living in it, it is I think um, well funny aside by the way I will I will say when I started at APH I said you know my I, they, they, they uh, when they recruited for the position, they were interested in having somebody either in Washington or Louisville. And I said, the first thing I was going to have to learn is how to say the city name. And I still haven't quite got the full tongue roll and whatever is involved. Louisville, but you know, I'm, I'm working <laughs> yeah. on it. Not you bad. Need something I, in the bottom of the tongue, and I haven't yeah, figured out quite what it I is. Think, <laughs> uh, a swallow of a bourbon helps uh, if if you're so inclined, but. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, I'll have to give that a try. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Any excuse Listen, for an old fashioned. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Paul, did we lose you? Sorry, I just had to dismiss a phone call. 
Oh, okay. Yeah. So any excuse for an old fashioned, but guys. That was funny. Yeah. So, um, the, so, so I, um, they, they was, they said they wanted somebody in Washington or in Louisville. So that was fine for me. And I think the, the other thing that was appealing to me about Louisville, uh, was that the Craig Metter had come in as the new leader back in, I think, 2015. And, um, he, um, he, uh, sorry, my phone keeps buzzing at me. Um, there we go. Um, so he had come in and, and I think wanted to shift the priorities a little bit for APH. Um, it's a wonderful institution. There's great work happening, much more than I ever recognized when I, when I thought I knew about APH. When I got there, there's so much I don't know now that I've learned um, and there's still more to learn. But he, he definitely wanted to uh, connect APH more as a partner with other entities and... Um, and so he spent some time, um, I think, looking for ways to, to do that, to partner with other communities uh, and to also begin to try to develop more products that would serve a wider community, including looking at products that might serve adults. So we've been focused on education for all of our time, um, of course, since 1879 and, and doing a lot of stuff in that space. I think the other thing he wanted to try to do was to change uh, the approach and to modernize uh, what APH is doing. So a lot of interest in trying to develop new technologies and working with technology partners in some instances to uh, try to uh, feed more technology into, um, into development. So, you know, things like the Mantis and the Chameleon are two new Braille display products that... Yeah. Good Lord. Uh, I'm like getting a lot of calls all of a sudden. Um, it kind of reflects... You're on Sunday edition. <laughs> yeah. Sorry about that. That's okay. That kind of reflect this new uh, interest. So, so, so uh, the, in, in a way, the Mantis, you know, which some may have heard of as a QWERTY style Braille display, uh, in part was what could we make that would appeal to professionals, but also to students, high school in particular. And so it kind of fills both of those bills. And uh, we're, you know, we're now looking at a, a trying to really make a stab at the multi-line Braille display effort. Um, and so hopefully we'll get somewhere with that. But yeah, so that was appealing to me was to, to be involved with an organization that really wanted to, um, I think, broaden its connections. And I felt like, you know, that's something I can bring to the table. Um, and I, I I, because I'm a Washington person, I'm now working on trying to connect APH a lot more into the Washington DC disability community. Uh, and we'll, you know, we'll see how that goes. Awesome. So did you get a chance to participate in leadership week this year? Only a little, um, I missed the fireside chat and I'm embarrassed about that because my boss was on it. Um, but I thought it was cool that it happened, and um, I did. It is on our YouTube bit. page. Yeah, so I, I'm definitely gonna go, go I'm check gonna it go out. Listen, I'm totally going to go listen to it. <laughs> I because I mean, hats off to Dan Spoon and ACB for bringing so much of the field together, uh, and I think that speaks well of our field and and uh, the advocacy and service organizations and where they're going. That we're working more closely together. And, you know, Lee Nassahi, I did a little work with VisionServe uh, last year as a consultant. She very much has 
she is she is yeah. dedicated to collaborativeness collaboration there's the word i wanted and um so you know i think we're seeing a lot more of that in the field and that fireside chat really spoke to that and i did you know clark invited me on to talk a little bit to the legislative as part of one of the legislative meetings and the thing with aph is we have a fairly at the moment a fairly limited policy uh, platform. We have one major overriding issue, and that is to make sure the federal appropriation that develops products and services for kids, for students, I should say, because we have adult students, uh, is is robust and protected and increased. And that's that's a huge hand, a huge lift um, more than ever. Um, and it's going to be hard this year because there's a lot of front loaded federal spending, as we all know. But, um, you know, we also learned during the pandemic about a lot of the challenges for blind kids like anybody else who went home without much access to screen-based platforms and yeah. information. So that, I, that actually leads into something else I wanted to ask you. You know, what lessons has APH learned uh, from the pandemic and from the inequities of access that we've experienced? Yeah, I, I think technology is a, is a big one, but I also think, um, so, you know, we, uh, I know we'll be doing more because the other thing we learned is that there's, there's real interest in, and hunger in providing content. And so we started doing, uh, these webinar platforms for teachers, parents. We also did a set for students and they were, they were pretty popular where we would just you know, talk about um, a content area, or it might even be uh, sort of a, a related, some people call it the expanded core curriculum, where there are these other assets and other skills that need to be developed, independent living and, and self-advocacy and things like that. So we would maybe, you know, do some content in those areas. We did a, a session, um, and I think ACB will appreciate this, and I'm, I'm hoping we can figure out some ways to partner more on this. We did a... a, a a field, a virtual field trip to Fort Vancouver National Park in Washington State, uh, working with rangers, working with TV, uh, TVIs, working with ex, uh, experts at Portland State in Oregon, and it provided this fairly lengthy field trip with in, uh, detailed information about this Fort Vancouver National Park and, and the time frame of the 19th century when it was primarily active. Um, and I think it really showcased, you know, how to do something like that and. My sense is that, like everybody else, we've all learned that one of the values of, of all of this remote instruction is that we can do things that people would never be able to travel to or won't be, won't be able to travel to in large numbers, pandemic or not, just because it's the cost of travel. Honestly, and yeah. so we can do, we can fill in some of these gaps with really good content, uh, taking advantage of, of remote platforms and, and then supported stuff. So we, you know, we sent out tactile graphics and things like that of the fort. Wow, that would part. That seems like, from my limited perspective, it would part well partner well with Unity Description. Uh, Jolyn talked a little bit about that earlier on, and we had a, a Sunday edition about it a couple months ago. Yeah, um, I'll try to build that. Yeah, that would definitely. So I want to ask one more somewhat hard question. I'm not a Murphy Brown or a Barbara Walters or or anything like that, <laughs> but you know, uh, and and this ties in. You mentioned Lee a couple minutes ago. What um what can AB, APH do going forward for you know the growing concerns of, of people that are aging into vision loss? 
Yeah, it's it's a really good question, actually. And we've begun to think about what our role could be. Um, it's you know, it's tricky to a degree at APH because we we work under a, a very old federal law. Probably it, it might well be the earliest disability law uh, passed in 1879, and we and it's still pretty much the law that re, you know that requires us to serve this population or to be the service provider. And we do that with our state partners. Um, but we see the need, obviously, and we've begun to step into, you know, looking at adults' uh, services and, and the kinds of uh, technologies and products that adults might need. Um, and I've begun to talk to Craig and others have too about what, what role could we play in, in aging. Um, and even could the model of, of APH being a center, uh, and it doesn't have to be at APH, but could that model of a center with with uh, state accounts that essentially draw from that funding to provide services at the state and local level. Could that work? And I don't, it maybe could. Um, we, it is a, I have been working on the older blind issue since I got to ACB because I, it was clear that it was so underserved, that, underserved, poorly served, poorly funded. Yeah. Thank you. And yeah. Uh, I was pleased that Scott had started some work at AFB that I inherited to try to raise the appropriation under, under the Rehabilitation Act, and we got it raised, but then it stayed there because we stopped focusing on it at AFB because we had other things we needed to do. But um, you know that. But it. But I learned that with a really focused amount of effort, it could be done. We took it from 11 million to the 33 million that it's at today um, in you know four or five years, I think. So maybe less, maybe it's three years, but got a pretty hefty increase quickly and then it kind of stalled out. So, you know, I, but that program in itself is not enough. It's a start. And I, I love the fact that Lee and, and now Mark Reichert is working with her uh, and others. There, there really seems to be, the field really seems to be coming together to say, look, we have, we have got to solve this. This is, this is bedeviling all of us and it's, it's not right. It's not fair. It's not, not just. Yeah. So let's take a quick moment, John. Uh, do we have any hands? Does anybody have a question or a comment for Paul? Let's see. Okay, folks, raise your hands. Hands, hands, hands. In the meantime, like, Paul, Paul tell who? us the, uh, the websites and, and um, some of the, uh, <clears throat> the contact ways to uh, access information of for APH. Yeah, it's wow. uh, so <clears throat> a couple me. things. Yeah, APH is a very easy website. It's APH.org, APH.org. We're in the midst of doing some redesigns. Um, and uh, But from that stem, you can go to a lot of directions. You can look at products, obviously. Um, you can also look at the Connect Center. Um, and so one That's of the where things, all the webinars are, right? Uh, they're, they, they, I think they have their own place. Uh, and then there's something called the Hive where there are courses, um, HIVE, uh, little mini courses that you can take, um, sort of designed for teachers, parents, but also for, for students. Um, anyway, APH.org. And the Connect Center is, is uh, our centers that were started at, at the American Foundation for the Blind. So it's Career Connect, which focuses on employment. Family Connect, needs of families, obviously. And uh, Vision Aware, which is sort of older blind. I think it's still called that. All right. Awesome. John, we'll take one more look to see if there are any hands. Yes. I, I don't see any hands at this time. And it is about six minutes until the top of the hour. Anthony, I've put your listeners to sleep. I am sorry. 
I don't think so. I think they're <laughs> riveted in the conversation. <laughs> John, if anyone, if any hands pop up, let us know. In the meantime, Paul, let's play a round of Fast Five. What okay. is your your uh, most storied go to piece of technology? Uh, the Hymns U2 Mini. All right. Greatest book you've ever read? Say that again. Greatest book? Greatest book you've ever read, yeah. Uh, I've never read a book. I don't know. I, yeah, that's funny. I'm blanking. Uh, all of a sudden, you, you asked me a question that I, I, I'm, I'm struggling with. I'm trying to think if there's a book that I go back to a lot, but let's move on. I'll come back to it. All right. How about uh, greatest album? The one album that you rock out or dance out or just mellow out to? You know, it changes with time, but I've got to say that the, the, the guy that whose stuff has stayed with me for the last few years and his album that I really like a lot, Jason Isbell is his name and the album is Southeastern, which is just a great piece of songwriting front to back. He's an Alabama singer songwriter uh, and just a, just wonderful writes wonderful does wonderful work and is good guitarist he's sort of an underrated guitarist but he's really a fine guitarist awesome other than the mall the base in the potomac where other than that where's your favorite place to uh to go vacation uh, <laughs> well, i was gonna say if it's dc i am a huge fan of capitol hill i think everyone should visit the capitol and and Absolutely. just walk through and enjoy enjoy it um i you know this is going to sound really funny but my kids live in ohio i love columbus ohio I, that was where i started my life and i actually love visiting i think it's a great it's a great underappreciated city all right and if we asked your wife what is your greatest quality and what is your most annoying quality <laughs> I hope she would say listener is my greatest quality that, that I, that I will listen. And she jokes that I, she's like, you know more about my job than I know about yours. Cause you hear me prattle on about it. So hopefully listener and uh, most annoying, I think she doesn't like clutter very much. I've often said she would be a better blind person than me. Cause she is one of those people that puts everything back right where it goes when she takes it after she uses it. And I tend to just stuff just kind of accumulates around me and starts spreading. And, and I think that drives her nuts. What was the oddest question someone asked you about Ira or, you know, while you were the, one of the faces of Ira? Uh, I have certainly had people ask, uh, it, not surprising, they, they, you know, the, 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 how does it tell you I look or what, what, it, what does it tell you what I look like? Um, which is kind of an interesting, it's both, I think people are, you know, embarrassed to ask, but also obviously very self-interested, uh, to want to know if Iris says that, but I, what I thought you were going to ask is the funniest question anyone ever asked me. And I will say that probably the best question I ever got asked was when somebody was, we were in an airport walkthrough line, menu line, you know, for a, like a fast food place. And somebody was reading the menu and, and the person behind the counter said, are you reading to him in Braille? <laughs> that's good that was a great that is that is definitely good all right last question if you uh if you were handed a magic wand and said that you could fix one problem in the world what would you choose <laughs> uh i would you know i know this isn't the the answer for everybody but i would i would put uh I would put a smartphone in the hands of every, every blind person, maybe everybody. Cause I think it's the one 
it's the one game change piece where you can really take control of things in your life. It doesn't solve everything. I know that, but it solves a ton of stuff for us and for, for a lot of people. And it's not just blind Definitely people. I mean, it, is, it is huge. All right, let's do one hand. We've got um, about three minutes. So speak fast. Cindy LeBon, you may talk. Uh Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Cindy. Paul, I miss you. I miss running Capitol Hill with you. We had fun. And we'll do it again. I sure hope so. All right. I got something for you. Now, I heard you all talking about days of our lives, and I was shocked as could be when I heard that it was described. Now, since I've been working at home for a year, I am a young and restless fan. I used to watch Cindy, Days of Our I'm going to put yeah. you on hold. We're going to stay on the call, but we've got to end on mainstream. So, okay. everybody, I'll be back next Sunday with a great show. Thank you, Jolene. Thank you, Paul. You've been listening to Sunday Edition with Anthony on ACB Radio Mainstream. For more information, questions, comments, feedback, suggestions, etc please email celebration ac that's the word celebration with the letters ac at aol.com look forward to hearing from you and let's brunch again next sunday